0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com slash the dig and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Being Brown, Sonia Sotomayor and the Latino Question by Lazaro Lima. Being Brown tells the story of the country's first Latina Supreme Court justices' rise to the pinnacle of American public life at a moment of profound demographic and political transformation. While Sotomayor's confirmation appeared to signal the greater acceptance and inclusion of Latinos, the uncritical embrace of her status as a possibility model, and ICON paradoxically erased the fact that her success was due to civil rights policies and safeguards that no longer existed. Being Brown analyzes Sotomayor's story of success and accomplishment, despite seemingly insurmountable odds, in order to ask, What do we lose in political practice when we allow symbolic inclusion to supplant the work of meaningful political enfranchisement? In a historical moment of resurgent racism and unrelenting Latino bashing, being brown explains what we stand to lose when we allow democratic values to be trampled for the sake of political expediency. It provides the historical vocabulary for understanding why the Latino body politic is central to the country's future and why Sonia Sotomayor's biography provides an important window into understanding America at this historical juncture. Being Brown, Sonia Sotomayor and the Latino Question by Lázaro Lima, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I was going to take this week off, but with events moving so fast in Bolivia since the coup, I wanted to get this interview with scholar Jeff Weber done and posted fast. The coup against Evo Morales ends one of the last governments of the Latin American Pink Tide, These governments came to power on the strength of militant region-wide mass social movements against neoliberalism, and the right-wing reaction to them is no doubt a disaster. But with the mass resistance that we're seeing to the coup in Bolivia, the mass protests in Chile, Ecuador, and Colombia, and the plunging approval ratings for Bolsonaro in Brazil, what they all make clear is that their reaction is failing to take solid root. The bad news, then, is that the pink tide's cycle of struggle is coming to an end. The good news, or perhaps just the silver lining, is that the left very much remains in the fight. Today, we in the U.S. left should follow our comrades in Latin America and learn what we can from these recent experiences. Bruno Bastilles writes on Bolivia, quote, Now more than ever, the judgments about the facts are inseparable from the prior positions adopted with regard to the questions of how to think and organize today's emancipatory processes, whether on the basis of the autonomy of the movements or from within the hegemony of the state, or, but this option seems to be impossible to imagine today, on both fronts at the same time. Bostilles is right. We must indeed imagine and do both, and reject any simplistic assessments. If we are to transform society, then social movements and political parties need each other. And in Latin America, they will continue to need one another as they regroup and fight to win power once again. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you very briefly that this show depends on the support of listeners very much like yourself at Patreon.com/slash The Dig. It's only because you make this financially possible that I could bury myself in Bolivia readings all weekend to prepare for this hastily scheduled interview. So, I appreciate you all a ton. And if you are listening to this and you love the show and depend on us for in-depth analysis but haven't yet donated, please, right now is a great time to do so. It'll only take a few minutes, and we appreciate it immensely. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Jeff Weber, whose most recent book is the last day of oppression and the first day of the same, the politics and economics of the new Latin American left. Beginning in January 2020, he will be a professor in the Department of Politics at York University in Toronto. <music> Jeff Weber, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start with what happened on November 10th, when the military, quote, suggested that Evo Morales resign. Much of the debate between left and right, and even to some extent within the left, has been over whether it was a coup. Why was it a coup? Why do you think it's important to recognize it as such? And why has that question become so central?
1: The first thing is is that no coups are announced as coups, and they always have some legalese attempting to justify the behavior on those who are carrying it out. This is true of every recent coup in Latin American history, um, and it's true regionally. The key factor here is that you had a right-wing destabilization campaign which culminated in First, police mutiny, followed by the Armed Forces Commander-in-Chief Williams Calimán, suggesting, in quotation marks, that Morales stepped down from office. This was followed by the police accompanying the principal protagonist of these recent destabilization events, uh, Luis Fernando Camacho, into the presidential palace where he folded a Bolivian flag on the floor of the presidential palace, placed a Bible on it, and said that God had returned to palace. While outside, those of the anti-Morales opposition, supporters of Camacho, burned the the non-partisan indigenous Wafala flag. This was followed by An illegal, uh, two days later, by an illegal promulgation or self-declaration of Janine Añez as the president of the, or the interim president of the country. And her uh, legitimacy was immediately, her first meeting was with the commander-in-chief of the armed forces and the commander-in-chief of the national police to sanctify her term in presidency. You don't get closer to a definition of a coup than
0: what has just transpired. And why has that question become so so central?
1: I think it has become central in the way that from the mainstream and liberal debates and in terms of U.S. foreign policy and the policy of the European Union, Canada, other U.S. allied states in Latin America, they, of course— want to legitimate uh, the new government, the new regime. And this would not be possible through recognition of this as a unconstitutional break with Bolivian rule. So as they did in Honduras in 2009, as they did with Fernando Lugo in 2012, as they did with Lula in Brazil in 2016, This was never called a coup. These coups have different variations, but all of them were coups. Some were softer, some were harder. This is a mid-range coup, somewhere between Honduras in 2009 and the Brazilian coup of 2016, but they all removed democratically elected presidents. So on the right, the liberal and conservative right, it's fairly straightforward why this was not called a coup in the sense that they very rarely call coups that they're supporting coups. On the left, it's more complicated, and we will get into this, I'm sure, but the various uh, divisions and disputes by sections of the independent left with the Morales government over recent years meant that there were some forces in the streets, as there frequently are in military coup d'etats preceded by destabilization in the streets. There were popular sectors certainly involved in this. There were there was a mass element to the protests, and because some of the protesters had legitimate questions about democratization and legitimate sec- sectional disputes with Morales over the last several years, because that was the reason for them being in the streets, they saw this remo- his removal as of office as somehow an expression of them being in the streets. But the reality is that they had no political significance, no political weight in the character of what was happening over the last several weeks that put this illegitimate government into office. In fact, it was led by the far right, and crucially, without the military acting preceded by the police mutinies, there never would have been a transfer of power. So I think that is the
0: basic background for the contours of the debate yeah, it's it's not like Chile, which is perhaps like the archetypal coup in Latin America, where the military does the coup, but then takes over direct control of government themselves. But in Bolivia, the military's role was critical, as you point out, in two moments. First, in Morales' ouster, and then in the imposition of Añez. Crucially.
1: And even in the immediate period that followed, that is the last two weeks— you have the military playing a very important consolidation role in Anya's announcing through one of her first presidential decrees was that for the foreseeable future, they would not have legal responsibility for the outcomes of repressive actions as they encountered protesters, which basically gave them a green light of impunity to act as they did nearly 30 dead Uh, As a consequence, not all traceable to the armed forces, but many of these deaths are direct assassinations of civilian pro-democracy protesters uh, who had complete legitimacy to be uh, demanding the restoration
0: of democracy in the country. This decree was made on November 14th, and the day after, nine cocaleros or, or cocoa growers were shot and killed, I believe, in Cochabamba. And then others were were killed in El Alto, the, the indigenous sister city above La Paz, where anti-coup coup protesters were involved in mass, and have been involved in mass blockades of the capital.
1: Precisely. Outside of Cochabamba. So in the department of Cochabamba, which has as its principal city also named Cochabamba, it was in the outskirts of Cochabamba that nine cocoleros, or coca growers, the principal social base historically and in the contemporary period of the Morales government, were uh, assassinated on site. In the case of El Alto, again, a heartland historically of Morales support, you had a whole series of deaths associated in one particular instance around the Blockade that had been erected by pro Morales supporters of a gas plant, uh, which was preventing uh, fuel trucks from taking fuel from El Alto to the sister city of La Paz. It's important to to understand that although these are two technically separate cities, this is one urban conurbation. That, that is, there's no there's no actual border between El Alto and La Paz. So El Alto is more or less a shanty town which sits on the high plateau above La Paz. So this blockade of the uh, of the fuel by Morales' protesters, they sent in the military, uh, and predictably, a number of deaths uh, followed.
0: It, there are blockades all around that, that basically cut off La Paz from the, the rest of the country by road. But this particular attack was on the blockade around the Sencata gas plant, I believe, which was the same plant that was being blockaded in 2003 during the gas wars, where the government also massacred protesters
1: that's correct that's correct so there are haunting memories of the repression in particular of the government of gonzalo sanchez de losada one of the most hated presidents of modern bolivia for the massacre in 2003 in in precisely the area that you're talking about
0: stepping back a little what is the overall current state of the protest movement and the repression against it and in terms of the social movements resisting the coup, what are the core groups involved, and to what degree are they aligned with and coordinating with MAS, and to what degree is it bigger than than MAS as a political formation?
1: Okay, so let's start with uh, yesterday, November 24th, and then work our way backwards slightly, because important developments happened yesterday morning, the the consequences of which are difficult to parse exactly because of the proximity uh, to the present. But it does seem that yesterday a law was promulgated uh, with unanimous support in both the houses of Congress, that is to say the Mass, the Movement Towards Socialism Party of Morales, both the senators and the deputies in the chamber of chamber of deputies supported this this law convening new elections within a 120-day period. And the first 20 days of that 120-day period there will be a decision as to who will be the new members of the Supreme Electoral Tribunal, which will be decided by the members of the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate. And that new tribunal, which has to be determined within 20 days, will then announce when the elections are. But within four months, they are supposed to happen. Now, that law that was passed yesterday also says that Vice President Álvaro Linera and President Evo Morales cannot participate in the new elections. However, the Movement Towards Socialism Party can participate with new candidates. Um, but more than this, the president uh, or the interim coup president, Añez, has said that if Morales and Garcilinera were to return to the country, she says that they are... Uh, technically allowed to return. They're not going to keep out any Bolivians, but if they do return, they will be charged with terrorism and sedition with sentences of up to 15 to 20 years should they be found guilty. At the same time that the mass senators and the mass deputies in the Chamber of Deputies supported this new law, they also simultaneously put forward a bill saying that the vice president Garcilinera and President Morales need to be granted immunity, as do other high-ranking officials of the mass party that the government wants to try for various charges. So that's important in terms of the immediate state of the resistance because it seems, although we can't know for sure, it seems as if there will be and there has been a relative demobilization. But in the weeks prior to this, uh, since the assumption to office uh, illegally by Anyas, the key actors in resisting the coup have been the Sesud Sebe, that is the National Confederation of Peasants, which is tightly aligned with the Morales government historically, the Federation of Neighborhood Councils of El Alto, Fehuve El Alto, different parts of the organized labor movement, and crucially the Cocoleros or the coca growers of the Chapare region of Cochabamba. The federation of those cocoleros is in fact still directed by Evo Morales. And it seems as though Morales has accepted the new terrain of not running in the new elections, obviously wants to return to the country without facing terrorism charges, and to resume his role as president of the Federation of Cocoleros. Those are the key actors involved.
0: Ewan Forrest Hilton wrote, quote, the far-right co-opted and hijacked mass-centrist protest by urban middle classes that preceded the coup. And as you mentioned, Luis Fernando Camacho, the head of the civic committee in the opposition stronghold of Santa Cruz, displaced the more centrist-leading opposition candidate, the presidential candidate, Carlos Mesa. And and Mesa, by way of context, is is a well-known entity in Bolivian politics, having served as vice president under... Gonzalo Sánchez de Lozada, Goni, and then was president himself from 2003 to 2005 after Goni was driven from office, before he was himself driven from office. Who is this self-described macho-camacho? And how did he overtake Mesa as opposition leader so quickly? And, And where does the purported president, Añez, who was relatively unknown. She's from a tiny right-wing party called the Democratic Social Movement, which got just 4% of the vote.
1: Right. Let's start with uh, Macho Camacho and the Macho Camacho effect, as Forrest and I called it in the article you're citing. He is a unknown nobody entity outside of Santa Cruz, which, as you noted, is a heartland of right-wing opposition to Morales dating back to uh, the movements that put Morales into place in the 2000 to 2005 left indigenous period of, of revolt that pre- that preceded Morales in office. During those disputes historically and in the first period of Morales' rule, Santa Cruz was, was center in terms of destabilizing or attempting to destabilize the new administration. A crucial uh, shock troop, Front for the more officialist Santa Cruz Civic Committee was the shock troop of the Civic committee, although not formally aligned, was the Union Juvenil cruceñista or the Cruceño Youth Union, which is a proto fascist group of youth who effectively ran rampage rampages in two thousand and eight against indigenous street vendors in the city of Santa Cruz, beating up and uh, violently attacking and destroying any indigenous opposition. These are right-wing white supremacists. And Luis Fernando Camacho was the president of the Unión Juvenil Crucinista in a, an earlier period in the 2000s. He's now 40 years old, an evangelical Christian, comes from a relatively important wealthy family although not one of the leading families of the department of Santa Cruz with interests in finance and industry but he recently became the new president of the Santa Cruz Civic Committee that is the body that coordinates historically the political interests of the different sections of capital agrocapital commercial capital finance capital narco capital different sections of capital in the eastern lowlands and organizes them as a regional entity.
0: And as you mentioned, in, in 2008, in the, the late 2000s, this was the epicenter of a movement for so-called regional autonomy that erupted across the the media luna, the, the half moon of the eastern part of Bolivia.
1: That's correct. In 2008, this was the Although it's called the eastern lowlands, geographically, it stretches from the north of the departments of Beni and Pando down to the eastern lowlands of Santa Cruz and into the southeast of Tarija. Those are the eastern lowlands, even though they're not actually all in the east. Santa Cruz is the heartland, the most important city. Uh, Tarija is the department with the natural gas deposits overwhelmingly. So these are the crucial areas uh, of the right and the early right-wing opposition to Morales. So in 2008, they attempted what was uh, called at the time a civic coup attempt. It wasn't civic in some kind of benevolent sense, civic because the civic committee of Santa Cruz was leading it. This effectively took over uh, large chunks of the country, including the seizure of airports, major public state institutions in the eastern lowland departments, and ended with a massacre of uh, two dozen peasants in the uh, department of Pando, uh, which led to a militarization, a state of emergency in the Pando declared by Morales, and the delegitimation of that civic coup attempt. But up until that point, that is the kind of politics that Camacho comes out of. And I think Camacho should be related uh, regionally to the sort of politics and rapid emergence of a far-right figure from the margins to the center of politics in the same way that Jair Bolsonaro in, in Brazil uh, erupted recently. So Camacho comes out, of, comes out of the woodwork and quickly takes over almost immediately in October. Now, why was this possible?
0: How did, as you asked, citing Marx, a, a grotesque mediocrity come to play a hero's part?
1: Exactly. And you don't get more mediocre than, uh, than this guy. Um, uh, Camacho, he's able to take over in part because of the shared mediocrity of the center. In fact, Carlos Mesa, who, as you noted, he's never been elected president, but he was president between 2003 and 2005 because he had been vice president under Sanchez de Rosada. And very late in the day, after Sanchez de Lisada unleashed the military against unarmed civilians in El Alto, and his popularity plunged, and it was quite obvious that sooner or later he was going to be removed from office, at that point, Mesa distanced himself uh, in a calculated way uh, because he knew that the uh, constitutional transition deemed him to be the new interim president as, as Sanchez de Lisada's vice president. And he was also able to distance himself from Sanchez de Lozada even though he had been vice president because he wasn't of the same party as Sanchez de Lozada. So Mesa is well known in this sense and he's well known as a historian, he's well known as a television commentator in Bolivian politics and he comes from parents who are very well-known uh, historians. So he has a high established pedigree as a urbane middle-class intellectual and TV commentator and a very brief stint of an unelected presidency. In the period leading up to these elections, for the first time, the Bolivian right more or less cohered around one presidential candidate. There were formally more presidential candidates, but for the first time, the right cohered around a single candidate and a center-right package of the, the citizen community, as it was called, of uh, a very, a very new party of Carlos Mesa. So Mesa is running on a, a center-right a platform against Morales, mostly about democracy with a fairly empty set of platform agendas apart from restoring democracy. So you already knew and Mesa already laid the basis for the idea that fraud was coming in the October 20 elections even before we could have known that they, that, they, that they were going to happen. I mean, Mesa's point was that there's no way that uh, Morales is not going to commit fraud. And so as soon as the elections took place, almost immediately the next day, we'll talk about the details, I'm sure, in a moment. But he declares fraud uh, to have happened. And you could tell that he was not actually sure fraud had happened because when the Organization of American States then offered to audit or to investigate the fraud claims, and Morales accepted, Mesa didn't accept it and took to the streets. I mean, if he had thought fraud happened and should be investigated, he could hardly have thought that the OAS would be somehow favorable to Morales
0: in terms of... Yeah, the OAS is not exactly a bastion of revolutionary leftism.
1: Exactly, exactly. No one historically and uh, with reason by the Latin American left as an extension of the U.S. State Department. So the OAS was going to and did play the role that should have been predicted by Morales. But Mesa had already said there has been fraud. Uh, This president needs to resign. And he is stoking what were already on the very first day, October 21st, uh, violent protests. So they were burning down the uh, tribunal electoral centers in various departments. And it was foreseeable that in that context, a centrist like Mesa, who's built himself on this sort of image, is not going to be the candidate who channels a insurrectionary process to the right of the OAS. Mesa is precisely the candidate, had he played his cards more smartly, of being who the OAS would want to run the country, whether he is elected or not, and he wasn't. But Camacho comes up out of this tumult and is able to secure his leadership because of the centrality of Santa Cruz in the orchestration of these events. Although the middle class revolts happened throughout the country, the real heartland was in Santa Cruz, which is Camacho's heartland. So Camacho... With the support, first he tries to come into the western part of the country and he's repelled by resistance in El Alto. He can't actually get in to La Paz from the airport in El Alto. Later, after the police have mutinied, he's accompanied by the mutinous police to make his dramatic entrance into the office. It's important to remember that Camacho appears on the balcony with Añez on her first public expression as the ostensibly new president of Bolivia. And that is together with Marcos Pumari, who is the civic committee leader of
0: Potosí. So this is where... And who is indi- who is indigenous, Ayamara?
1: Right. An indigenous Aymara from the southwestern province of Potosí, one of the poorest provinces historically, the uh, famous tin mines... Uh,
0: historically silver mines yeah th- one of the poorest places that created some of the greatest wealth in human history
1: precisely so potosi and this is another thing that gives the character of the destabilization destabilizing protest a certain character of a or, or a popular hue to the character is that the potosi dynamic with pumari has to do with a very specific regional dispute that Pumari had and his followers in the department over over future lithium deposit wealth to be accrued by the department or to be accrued by the central state. What extent was the foreseeable wealth of this new extraction going to go to Potosi to to reverse its, its historical underdevelopment? So it was a marriage of convenience between a popular indigenous leader in the Department of Potosí, who gave a credibility that Camacho desperately needed, and then a credibility in turn to Añez, who, as you say, is another variation of nobody. Her party has 4% of votes in uh, the previous election. Oh, sorry, in this election. And uh, she's a relatively unknown senator from the Department of Beni, a right wing ultra Catholic, not uh, evangelical by Camacho. But as in Brazil, the right wing Catholics and the right wing evangelicals are finding, in turn, a marriage of convenience.
0: They're singing from the same hymn book these days. Exactly. Exactly. Just to talk about the vote for. A minute since this is such a central aspect of the the dispute. The coup took off amid opposition protests after Morales was declared the winner of the October election and opponents claimed fraud. And the the rules were that Morales had to either win more than 50 percent of the vote to avoid a runoff or more than 40 percent with at least 10 percent more than his closest opponent, Carlos Mesa. The OAS claimed that the results were improbable. On the other hand, an analysis that's been circulated a lot on the U.S. left by the Center for Economic Policy Research found that there was no evidence at all that anything was amiss. And as you mentioned earlier, the opposition was prepared to denounce fraud in advance, no matter what happened. And then the OAS heightened the conflict by denouncing fraud with no hard evidence. And Moss had always claimed that the votes arriving later on from rural areas that are more strongly Pro Morales would put him over the top. But on the other hand, you write that the government provided at least four contradictory explanations of why the so-called quick count, there was a quick count versus like the actual tabulation of the votes. That quick count was suspended after it reached 83% of the vote total, which was a major point of dispute. What's your assessment of the vote and the conflict over its legitimacy? Okay, so the
1: first thing to note is that, in fact... The protests against fraud occurred before the official vote had even concluded. This is quite important because what the mobilizations were responding to was exclusively the quick count, which has no legal standing. And this becomes quite important to the rest of the story. So on the evening of October 20th, the day of the elections, which was a Sunday, that evening, as is usual in its proceedings, the Supreme Electoral Tribunal released what is a transmission of quick count results, which is a, it is what it sounds like, a quick count. And once they'd done 80% of the vote counts, that evening they shut down. And when they shut down the live transmission, there was a lead of less than 10%, although very close to 10%, between Morales as the leader and Carlos Mesa as the second candidate. Now, as you say, if there is less than 10%, there needs to be a second round. So on that basis, the opposition, Carlos Mesa said, it looks like we will have a second round, so we should be celebrating. Likewise, Morales said, Looks like we won't need a second round because the rural votes will come in. Now, formally, neither of them should have been announcing anything because this was a quick, quick count with no legal standing. Now, it turns out that against usual practice, the OAS recommended to the Electoral Tribunal to reopen its live transmission the next day within 22 hours of the time that it closed. At that stage, roughly 96% or thereabouts of the votes had been counted as the quick count procedure, and there was now a distance of slightly more than 10%, meaning we could project no second round. But again, no legal declaration of the end of the elections because there can't be one until there is the official count. It is at this point that the protests go wild around fraud. And unfortunately, the representatives of the electoral tribunal do not do any favors to the Morales administration by providing a series of bizarre explanations for, or at least um, different explanations for the same shutdown, one of them being a cybernetic attack or the expectation of one. The vice president of the uh, electoral tribunal also resigns because he said he hadn't been asked about shutting it down. Although he's insisted at the point of resignation that there had been no evidence of a fraud. So a series of bizarre behaviors. But as the report indicates that you cited by the CEPR of Washington, D.C., they note that it is entirely typical behavior. In fact, it's written into their mandate that the Supreme Electoral Tribunal is only to count up to 80 percent of quick count votes on the first evening. And that shutdown would never have been reopened under normal procedures. You would just wait for the official count to come in several days later, often up to a week later. But there already were massive live protests, burning of tribunals, and the notion of fraud had set in without any uh, evidence Of the official count. It was at that point that Morales accepts that the OAS should investigate. And the OAS, in this context of already live far right revolts, several days later announces that it sees serious irregularities, the OAS indicates in their report. But they don't provide any evidence for serious irregularities, nor do they provide evidence of fraud. They suggest they speculate as to a likely fraud, but they are also discussing in the report the non-legally standing quick count discrepancies and the probability of whether or not that distance between less than 10% to more than 10% in 22 hours was likely statistically. They suggest that it was improbable. But other statisticians suggest that it was probable, even predictable, based on past patterns of rural votes coming in. But regardless, it has no legal standing, and there's no evidence of fraud. And there is no dispute around the pace with which the results were released in the official count. So the live transmission is steadily released, and there's no evidence of fraud, although they suggest uh, irregularities but irregularities the accusation without evidence is highly insufficient to postpone the result of a democratic election
0: and as you mentioned earlier the the OAS played an inflammatory role in delegitimating the help assisting in the delegitimation of the election and it's often seen throughout the region as an extension of the US state department but the U.S. role, if there was one, is something we can't know the truth about right now because whatever it was, if it, if there was a role, is secret. But from what we know about the U.S., is it safe to say that had it seen an opportunity to assist in the coup that it, that it would have done so? I think it's safe to assume that at
1: a minimum—well, we don't need to assume this. What we know already is that the Trump administration is celebrating the absence of Morales' in the region this was expressly declared in his first communique uh, about the matter so by at first least communique the... is, that a, is that a tweet <laughs> i assume <laughs> yeah. uh, no this is the this is the state of, uh, this is on his official uh, uh. <laughs> um, uh, his official response i i'm not sure how much earlier he tweeted about it but the first official response was Uh, Probably more coherent and said that he was in favor of these events. But what we know, uh, what we do know about recent behavior in Bolivia, even without looking at US roles historically or in the recent past in the rest of the region, just in Bolivian history and in recent Bolivian history, we have the evidence that came out of the WikiLeaks by the courageous activities of Chelsea Manning they indicate that the U.S. was highly supportive and meeting with civic coup backers of the 2008 destabilization campaign. And we know that the National Endowment for Democracy, the Republican Institute, the U.S. aid, and so on, are all institutions which have to publicly declare money going to, quote unquote, civil society, political parties, which are all oppositional in the Bolivian context. Now, the money itself isn't a smoking gun because this is not actually that much money that they declare. And it and it's also true that historically they don't declare uh, if it's a matter of uh, national security and so on. But we won't know those facts short of a leak uh, of the scale of Chelsea Manning. What happened for a, a long time to come? But we can assume that based on U.S historical record in Latin America, it was at a minimum happy and likely lending at least the support to say, in the event that you successfully carry out a coup, we will give you democratic cover. I think we can say that that is to be assumed. In the case of Juan Guaido in Venezuela, very recent coup attempt, April of this year, the backing was Extraordinary evident, even in live time, because it was within an hour of Juan Guaido uh, announcing that he was the new interim president, again, effectively a nobody in politics in Venezuela, declaring himself the interim president of the country. Within an hour, Trump had accepted this uh, publicly, that he was the new president, and so had
0: all of the U.S.-aligned countries. Which means they certainly knew it was coming.
1: Yes. It seems highly improbable that this wasn't known beforehand, what action was to come and what response Guaido could expect. Now, in the Venezuelan case, it was a historic, if it weren't so serious, it would be a humorous display of ineptitude on the part of the United States. So so we should also be aware that although the US is involved, it is not omniscient and it is not all powerful in the sense of determining these things. Yes, And the domestic dynamics in Bolivia were overwhelmingly i would argue the key elements although those of us located in in imperial powers obviously need to focus our political attention on uh, condemning the known and assumed activities of our governments in supporting these events
0: returning to the the composition and the context within which the right is ascending at present in Bolivia. Ewan Forrest wrote that, quote, "...similar to what happened in Brazil under the PT, due to the promotion of popular and indigenous sectors in Bolivia, urban middle-class people perceived that their status had been undermined during the course of the Morales years. There was a new petty bourgeois indigenous layer, and the country's indigenous traditions were newly valorized in the public school system." even as the quality of public education remained dire. In what sense is the right-wing resurgence a product of a reaction rooted in long-standing mestizo and Creole racism uh, among not only elites but also middle classes who suddenly saw indigenous people take jobs that they had previously considered to be theirs by right?
1: Let's deal with the middle class and then the elite who are in, to a certain extent, at least in the last period, synergistic relations, but weren't always in that relationship. So the middle class has a contradictory relationship with the Morales period. On the one hand, the Morales period is one of capitalist dynamism, high rates of growth, some of the highest in the region, high employment, high social stability, until very recently, repeated democratic elections, and some of the highest rates of stability, in fact, the highest rates of political stability in the period since the return of democracy in 1982. Now, those kinds of factors are typically highly valued by a liberal democratic middle class, and Bolivia is not an exception in that sense. However, there were contradictory dynamics to this, not least because of the particularly racist character of the Bolivian social formation. Bolivia is one of the only countries in Latin America in which a majority of the population as a whole is indigenous, self-identified as such. We can discuss the numbers. In 2001, self-identification was 62% in that census. In 2012, it drops down to closer to 40% because of a change in numbers, and there are many debates about the self-identification figures. But you can say, splitting the difference, roughly half of the country self-identifying as indigenous with the dominant groups being Aymara and Quechua, with several other lowland indigenous groups and so on. There was a historical correlation between indigenous oppression and exploitation of class of the lower echelons of society. And... Although this is the case in other parts of Latin America, it is exaggerated in the Bolivian scenario. Insofar as you effectively had, uh, for much of the modern period of the Republic since 1825, more or less informal apartheid rule, that is to say, apartheid race relations without them consistently being legalized as such. So consider the analogy of South Africa, and the importance of Mandela's election in 1994, you have a similar uh, importance in terms of the question of indigenous oppression for Morales's victory. And whatever one subsequently says about the Morales government, that significance has to be acknowledged and put front and center. Now, the middle class, the urban middle class, typically identifies as Creole, that is of ostensible European ancestry or heritage, or Mestizo, as mixed heritage of indigenous and European ancestry. So there's an identification of the middle class being whiter, self-identifying as such and being recognized by others as such. This is much more pronounced in the eastern lowlands, where white supremacy is a very sharp feature of society, but it is also true of the Western highlands where the capital is La Paz and in the valley cities of Cochabamba and so on, with distinctions. But the general trend is this this basic dynamic. Now, what Morales does is he becomes the first indigenous president, or at least the first president to self-identify as indigenous in the country, since the founding of the Republic in 1825. And he starts to, among other things, incorporate, in a proportional sense, indigenous people into the state bureaucracy for the first time. And the state bureaucracy has always been, in modern capitalist Bolivian history, a key source of employment in a country which is relatively uh, lacking in industry and development. Even in times of dynamism, as in the last period, not a lot of industrial growth, which we can talk about. So a key source of middle-class jobs and a key source of their ideology of meritocracy had to do with their social mobility being tied to entry into the state. Now, they were still even disproportionately represented in the state, in the state bureaucracy, but there were greater numbers of indigenous people going in, and there was a sense of the middle class that these people hadn't earned it. They didn't have the same educational backgrounds, even if they did. They didn't have the same meritocratic points of entry. Instead, it was clientelistic relations or affiliation to the ruling party. So that started to grate on the middle class. But the key factor, overwhelmingly, is the February 2016 uh, referendum. This is what ignites a urban middle class movement against Morales,
0: And that's when Morales, uh, there's a referendum to eliminate term limits and he narrowly loses it. And then the constitutional court says that it would be a violation of someone's rights to limit their terms in office. And it's at this moment, it seems like the middle class really breaks from him. And the middle class has been, it seems like this key pivot point because it comes over during the early 2000s social mobilizations and then is, is, is won over to mass for quite a while. Exactly.
1: Yes. Uh, so there was... A, at least
0: portions of it.
1: Right. So there was, in the process of 2000 to 2005, which we'll return to, but just to mention the middle class aspect of this, over the latter part of that period, particularly in the period of violence by Sanchez de losada, the middle class was uncharacteristically radicalized. That is, it joined the popular classes in protests against what was seen to be a completely illegitimate government. And it did so even behind an, in the likelihood of an indigenous person becoming president for the first time. So the middle class had been radicalized. It doesn't mean that they ever saw Evo Morales uh, themselves or uh, an expression of their interests. But for a period, the middle class was radicalized. And even when it distance itself from that radicalism, so had Morales as a government. And there was capitalist dynamism happening in the country. And there were reasons to be optimistic as a middle class person. Now, the February 2016 referendum was crucial because of the commitment to the proceduralism of liberal democracy. And this idea of corruption and anti-corruption and anti-nepotism is a key catalyzing force of the rightward drift of the middle class in country after country in recent years in Latin America. And Bolivia is no exception in this dynamic. The catalyst is the 2016 referendum, which they see as Morales using his influence within the electoral tribunal to uh, render a legally dubious decision that his rights are being violated which was an appeal to an American convention to which the Bolivian state is a signatory. But it is true and very obvious that the Bolivian constitution says that you have two terms in office, two consecutive terms as your maximum in office. Now, Morales was allowed three terms because after his first term, a new constitution was introduced in 2009. So his term... So the first in 20- term didn't count. Right. Under the the
0: new constitution.
1: Right. So in the constitutional rules, he was uh, relatively uncontroversially, this would be his, well, excuse me, it was very controversial. The right didn't like this idea that this was not his second term, but they learned to live with it. But when he was going to go for a fourth term, this became a major problem for the middle class. They start a movement around this, uh, named after the date of February 21st the F-21 movement, which was a overwhelmingly urban middle class, attempting to make him illegible to run as the candidate of the mass. Now, interesting to note, however, that Luis Almagro, the general secretary of the OAS, the same general secretary who played the role in the recent events, accepted that Morales could run in the elections and accepted the constitutionality of those elections. So we can have legal debates about, more importantly, in my view, political debates, that Morales ought to have taken the popular will of the 51%, whether he was legally obliged to or not. But that is a debate to be had, a political one. But it is patently the case that the middle class is set off by this dynamic. Now, the elite question, which you mentioned, is a slightly longer and more complicated story, as is its relationship to the middle class. The original response of the different sections of capital in the different regions of the country to Morales being elected with 54% of the vote in 2005 and coming to office in January 2006 was absolute horror uh, at the prospect. They had no idea what he was going to implement, how radical this was going to be. And despite the eventual contradictions and limits of, of the policies that he first introduced, which became visible in coming years, the first policies he introduced were necessarily gestures towards his social base. And those were the nationalization of gas or what seemed to be the nationalization of gas in 2006, the institution of a constituent assembly process, and gestures towards the beginning of an agrarian reform program. And the... Eastern lowland elites in particular reacted to this extremely vociferously, although they were politically very weak, in my view, at the beginning of the term in 2006. They nonetheless responded with hysteria at the idea of an indigenous, what they thought of as an illiterate, enumerate president, ruling our country and stealing our land and so on and so forth in traditional racist vocabulary of the Bolivian ruling class. This section of the population, mostly around agrarian interests, natural gas interests, finance, and so on, they organized through the Civic Committee of Santa Cruz in alliance with the civic committees of other parts of the Media Luna departments that we've mentioned, Pando, Beni, Tarija. And they eventually, in the next two years, are able to move from a position of weakness to a position of relative strength in 2008 and and attempt to both undermine the constituent assembly process, make it impossible to run, attempt to create a completely uh, unstable situation for the government, and with the interest of ousting him. Now, they knew that they could not oust him at a national level because they had no political leverage at this point. They were completely politically discredited because of their alliances with Sanchez de losada and the violence of his regime. But they opportunistically attached themselves to the idea of regional autonomy. Now, in my view, they were never interested in actual independence. This was merely a holding pattern to rebuild themselves in an effort to reconquer the national state. Which invi- which... While
0: destabilizing the Morales government. Exactly.
1: But when that process ends in disaster for them, following the Pando massacre, in which the governor of Pando, one of, their, one of the right-wing destabilization campaign's key proponents, when he was uh, imprisoned for his role in facilitating that massacre, that movement was delegitimized, and there started to be almost immediately... Uh, splits within the ruling class in the eastern lowlands. And these splits became even more decisive once they failed to prevent the new constitution from being established in 2009. There was a popular referendum, 67, I think it's 67 percent, it's high 60s in support of that referendum, in a popular referendum uh, in 2009. And they saw that as them being politically defeated. There was no future for a destabilization campaign of the kind they'd been attempting. And in that moment, key sections of agribusiness in particular part ways with the Santa Cruz Civic Committee and start to make gestures of a pact with Morales. And Morales, over the next three years, including decisively under the impetus of the Vice President Alvaro Albu- García Linera, orchestrate a new arrangement, a set of agreements with large agrarian capital in the East and their interests.
0: And according to Pablo Stefanoni, García Linera was eyeing this as the way to get out of the political conflict of the early 2000s From from early on, this sort of I don't know how to say it in English. Like I think it's like in Spanish, salida pactada, pacted right. exit. Pacted exit, yeah. There's probably a nicer way. but Yeah,
1: I know. Exactly. So Garcilinera had this idea. I think there are two elements to Garcilinera's thought on this matter. One is an overestimation, in my view, although it's a counterfactual question that you can't demonstrate to be true. But I think there are reasons to believe that Garcilinera overestimated the political strength of the hard right in the eastern lowlands. They certainly had economic power, they certainly had investment power, but in my view they had been completely discredited and had no known ties in the military sufficient to carry out a coup. If there was going to be a coup, it would have happened in either in 2003 or in 2005 when the military could have provided easier legal justification or constitutional justification for their actions, because it has to be noted that both Sanchez de la Sada and Carlos Mesa were constitutional presidents in a liberal democratic order whose mandates were cut short by popular mobilization. The military could have, if it was in a position to, uh, intervened and said, we're not going to accept this break-in mandate, we're taking over, and provided some kind of constitutional justification. We've seen this in various patterns in the past in other cases. Because they didn't do that, it suggests that they didn't have the capacities to do so, or the right didn't have sufficient influence in the leading leading sectors of the military to carry it out, uh, because the right obviously very much wanted to prevent Morales com- from coming to office, and they weren't able to. So in the first part of the Morales administration, García Linera is decisive in overrepresenting, in my view, the threat of what an audacious package of reform in terms of agrarian reform would have been responded with. What Garcilionera said was, if we let the landless rural workers movement, for example, simply occupy occupy large landholdings and then give it legal credence after the fact, which they could have done constitutionally. But he said, no, we can't do this because there will be a military coup.
0: There will be Chile in 1973. We need to already... Enter into negotiations. And move carefully and, uh, and pragmatically so as not to quickly, immediately undermine the long-term project. It is important to point out that García Linera, for those who don't know, is, was not only Evo's vice president, but is an important Marxist thinker in his own right.
1: Exactly.
0: And if you think about his
1: Marxist thinking as a vice president compared to his Marxist thinking of the late 90s, early 2000s, There's quite a shift, I would argue, beginning around 2004 in the way he conceives of these processes of change. So the first element, as I suggested, was this idea of an overestimation of the political capacities of the right to undermine any audacious move by the Morales government. But the second factor was a belief, fundamentally, uh, which he made explicit in the first several months in office, García Linera, that He wanted to build, he saw as necessary, a long interim period of proper industrial capitalist development prior to the transition to a classless communism some 50 to 100 years in the future. Because Bolivia, in his view, didn't have the productive forces necessary for the foundations of of a transition towards something other than capitalism. So there are many things you can debate about this, but it's important to know that he was clear on his position on that and in order to do that it makes sense therefore that you make alliances not just out of convenience but out of commitment to agroindustrial capital in bolivia i mean why wouldn't you if you thought that this was the basis of the productive forces necessary for an eventual transition
0: and not only for the sake of an eventual transition but to immediately secure resource rents that were redistributed to, to the poor. And this dynamic, you write, it led to tremendous declines in poverty, high growth rates, a remarkably stable macroeconomic situation, and for quite a long time, huge electoral majorities. But, but critically, you also note that it also meant the deeper entrenchment of Bolivia's subordinated place at the bottom of the, the capitalist world system, where it has been since the Spanish were making their incredible riches from the silver mines of Potosi. Exactly. Except the one thing
1: that I would note is that the rents were not coming so much from agrarian capital as they were from hydrocarbon capital. Gas. Um, Yeah, gas in particular. That was the key for the extraordinary
0: revenue boom. So there were sort of two different packs with capital then. There was the one with with agro-industrialists, which was more of a scene which Garcilinera and and Morales saw as more of a political pact, and then the gas pact, which was more just to secure resource rents to meet the immediate redistribution demands from Morales's majority popular base. Those were sort of two separate things?
1: Two separate things. And you can assume in good faith that Garcilinera and Morales and the developmental team behind them are focusing on economics— it wasn't merely a pact of convenience with hydrocarbon capital or gas capital. It was also part of a larger strategy of what they said they hoped, and would there's no reason to believe that they didn't actually believe to be true, was the industrialization of gas. Now, that didn't happen, but it was certainly an attempt. Now, nationalization, it's important to point out exactly what it was without going into great detail. What happened in 2006 would never have been called nationalization in any earlier period of, say, the import substitution industrialization phase of Latin America. So there certainly, to start off with, was no expropriation without compensation whatsoever. To the extent that there was any uh, appropriation, this was with compensation. But the key factors in the negotiations were a renegotiation with multinational oil capital, gas capital, such that the rents and royalties going to the state were higher. There was also the condition of the reestablishment of the YPFB as a national state enterprise, although on a very much smaller scale than it had been prior to its privatization in 1996, under the first administration of Gonzalo Sánchez de Losada
0: And that was, was the state gas company.
1: Right. The YPFB state gas company. Now, the Fact of the matter is, in Bolivia at the moment, is that, and this was true throughout the Morales period, is that upper stream activities, that is exploration and production, are overwhelmingly, continue to be dominated by multinational capital. We can argue whether this was necessary, how necessary, and so on, but... We should recognize that this is the case because some people believe that the National Gas Company is somehow conducting exploration and production. All of the multinational capital that was there before Morales was there during Morales, and they enjoyed net profitability during the, during the high boom. In fact, more higher net profitability than they did in the 1990s. The downstream activity, commercialization, and to a very small extent, refining activities is being done by the YPFB the national state oil, uh, oil and gas company on a much smaller scale than earlier, as I suggested. But what was key in terms of effects on the overarching economy was that this was taking place in an extraordinary commodity boom driven by Chinese dynamism in the world market, Chinese industrialization, driving up the prices of not just natural gas, but also Bolivian minerals, Bolivian soya projects, products for uh, export and so on as animal feed To China, but the gas prices were linked to the overall oil prices, which were being driven up by Chinese industrialization. And so, even a relatively modest spike in royalties and taxes to more or less the median level of these taxes in the natural gas and oil industry internationally from very, very low levels meant a huge uptick in revenue to the state and huge consequences for other circuits of capital, that is, other sections of capital which actually create employment, construction, manufacturing to the degree that it it exists, infrastructure projects, all of that employment, in addition to providing the funds for cash transfer programs, which already existed in the neoliberal period, but were primed with heavy influx of this new revenue. The obvious problem with this, or one of the problems, is that The continuity of that model is contingent on the continuity of high commodity prices. And if you want to make any bet in Latin American history, it's not on the continuity of high commodity prices in the international market. And the global crisis of 2008 slowly reverberates into Bolivia in ways that we're still coming to terms with. But I think it's important as a factor and very much underappreciated in most commentary because of the surface appearance of growth in recent years that Bolivia wasn't affected by the crisis and that this has nothing to do with the coup.
0: Well, let me ask you about that, because the Latin American pink tide from Venezuela and Ecuador to Bolivia and Brazil had the the good fortune of, for many years, coinciding with this commodities boom, the commodities super cycle. But then when the boom started to go bust, I believe, beginning with agricultural prices in 2012 and then oil in 2014— It pushed left governments across the region into crisis and helped bring the right to power, but not until recently, at least in Bolivia. Why was Bolivia better able to weather the boom going bust than other pink tide governments? And in what, given that this we are talking about a commodity boom that starts to crash seven years ago now, what role can we see that playing the downturn in commodity prices playing in what's happening today in Bolivia?
1: That's a very good question. It has a number of facets. The first is the general trend in the region and then positioning Bolivia inside of that. The general trend, I think, is captured in what Eduardo Godinez, the Uruguayan political economist and political ecologist, has called the compensatory state. And that is to say that center-left and left governments coming to office In and around 2003 to the mid 2000s, including in the case of Bolivia, it's very important that they come to office in a period of renewed capitalist dynamism. Because what brought them to office was, in fact, an extraordinary wave of protests coming out of a period of economic crisis, very, very deep neoliberal crisis in the region between 1998 and 2002. Obviously, with distinctions between different countries, but as a general trend, particularly in South America, the worst crisis since the debt crisis of the early 1980s. And Bolivia was a part of that. And so the left indigenous movement between 2000 and 2005 is related to that. So Morales coming into office not in that period of crisis, but in a period of renewed capitalist dynamism, high natural gas oil rents, high agro-commodity rents, high mining mineral rents, and so on, means that to a certain degree, Bolivia, like other states governed by the left and center-left, and even to a certain degree, states governed by the right, were able to avoid or to minimize, for a temporary period, very important class questions. That is to say, for a period, you could allow for high profitability for multinational capital, high returns for finance, domestically and internationally, operating in your country, and you could have quite dramatic improvements in poverty, income inequality, and other factors. And Bolivia was a at the leading edge of those gains. It wasn't just a mechanistic economic dynamic. It was important, the role that they played in terms of the increases in royalties and taxes. But obviously, this wouldn't have been able to happen in the way that it did without a commodities boom. Now, the class questions that were able to be temporarily avoided were brought sharply to, to bear on politics and the so-called end of the cycle of the pink tide in other parts of the region, in South America in particular, because center-left and left governments made a bet that in a situation of declining state revenue, they said, for example, Dilma Rousseff's second administration in Brazil, we can effectively count on our social bases continuing to back us because there's no other choice, but we need to signal credibility to finance capital. And in order to, to do that, Dilma Rousseff introduces a neoclassical minister of finance, one of the leading bankers in the country, precisely after she had just run on an electoral campaign of one of the most left-wing electoral campaigns of her presidency. And what this does is it starts to lose the base of support by the popular classes for the PT, and it doesn't signal credibility. Without winning
0: over capital.
1: Right. And in Bolivia... You have a comparable but distinct situation, even though many people are so far missing it. And I'm not pretending that I can see into the future, but you see the dynamics already at play. Now, the first political distinction is that rather than introduce austerity immediately, as Rousseff did in the context of crisis, or almost immediately, the Morales administration, beginning in 2014, as gas prices begin to fall, draw instead on incredibly accumulated foreign reserves, totally without precedent, without precedent in Bolivian history. So the average in the preceding decades was a maximum between one and two billion dollars in U.S. dollars foreign reserves. There were 15 billion in 2014 in Bolivia to draw on. Every year since 2014, there has been a two billion dollar reduction in those foreign reserves to keep up the pace of foreign, uh, sorry, of public spending on infrastructure and social programs and so on, in order to avoid that question of dealing with the declining revenue of the problem of the commodities boom coming to an end. And at the same time, the currency remains overvalued, imports remain cheap, therefore, extending and intensifying a commercial imbalance in terms of trade, in which the value of exports continues to go down and the value of imports continues to go up. And uh, the indebtedness of the Bolivian uh, government is also going up. I'm not suggesting, therefore, that you are in a sharp crisis, as you are in Brazil a few years ago and to this day. But in a situation of declining revenues and that basic dynamic, what this said to capital was precisely that This period of learning to live with Morales is over. In the first period, we didn't want him. We tried to destabilize him. In the middle period, we learned to live with the political reality so long as net profitabilities were high. Now the crisis is starting to bear in Bolivia. We want austerity. We want that austerity transferred onto the the poor, onto the popular classes, and we want our conditions of profitability renewed. And that is necessary for that to happen. So this is where the dynamics of the the beginnings of a disintegration of the relationship with capital, which was always temporary, and a pacted agreement with Modales. It wasn't somehow a natural home for capital in any sense. But this was an important dynamic. And it's also true that the Bolivian case was sheltered for a period from the immediate effects of the commodity crisis in a way which is which will be unsustainable in the future. And that is because of Guaranteed natural gas prices to its two main export export countries, uh, based on long
0: which they had locked in at the height of the exactly. So in our because those countries wanted to secure natural gas supply from Bolivia, which gave Bolivia leverage to to lock in long term prices
1: exactly. And so this is going under in terms of the relationship with Argentina, both because the agreement. Is coming to an end, but also because of the discovery through fracking of natural gas resources in Argentina itself. So there's no reason to expect a kind of continuity in this in this area. And in Brazil, with economic stagnation, very much undercutting the right wing government, the far right government of Bolsonaro, and his hostility to uh, Bolivia, there are reasons to believe that the amount of gas. And value of gas going to Brazil is also going to be undercut, already has been undercut. So all of these dynamics are just to suggest that we wouldn't want to overestimate the way in which Bolivia has somehow managed its way through Keynesian policies out of the crisis. This was, a, in my view, a naive, naive response of certain social democratic economists about Argentina in an earlier period, about Brazil in an earlier period. There is no way to, through Keynesianism, to manage your way out of a world capitalist crisis. And this is no exception in a weak peripheral state of Bolivia. And there will be various, various political consequences as it comes home.
0: This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century by Eric Olin Wright, with an afterword by Michael Burroy. Capitalism has transformed the world and increased our productivity, but at the cost of enormous human suffering. Our shared values, equality and fairness, democracy and freedom, community and solidarity can provide both the basis for a critique of capitalism and help to guide us toward a socialist and democratic society. Eric Olin Wright has distilled decades of work into this concise and tightly-argued manifesto, analyzing the varieties of anti-capitalism, assessing different strategic approaches, and laying the foundations for society dedicated to human flourishing. How to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century is an urgent and powerful argument for socialism and an unparalleled guide to help us get there. Another world is possible. How to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century by Eric Olin Wright with an afterword by Michael Burroy. Out now from Verso Books. How does this model that you identify in Bolivia and elsewhere throughout the pink tide that you call capitalist neo-developmentalism compare to the left nationalist economic projects which were rooted in dependency theory and dominant throughout the post-war period, through the onset of neoliberalism. It was an approach that used this economic development model called import substitution industrialization to attempt to break global South countries out of their reliance on the export of primary goods. Because MAS leaders, you've said, did certainly understand this problem of Bolivia's place within the global system. The
1: comparison to... The ISI period of classical developmentalism in the post-war era is a crucial one, I think, because it indicates some of the structural distinctions between now and then, both in the region and in terms of developments of the world economy. The first thing to note is that even ISI, import substitution industrialization, as a program of development which was very much rooted in this idea even before dependency theory of the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, their notion of structuralism, which was significantly less radical than dependency theory, but was nonetheless the root of this idea. The successes and limitations of ISI as a way of regulating capitalist development in the periphery was highly uneven even at the high point of ISI. So you have quite industrialized countries like Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, by the end of that period. But Bolivia never really went through the similar classical period. It went through what Bolivians identify as the closest approximation to this, which was the nationalist populist program of development that came out of the 1952 revolution, but that was mainly state-owned enterprises being established in primary export parts of the economy. At the time...
0: Like Comibol. Exactly. The state-owned mining company.
1: Right. The tin mining company. And there was also the nationalization of oil before natural gas deposits were discovered. Oil was not a huge part of the economy but an important facet Uh, tin was much more important but both of these were not industrialized in the same way as you know the creation of an auto industry in brazil so the first thing to think about is the unevenness of the isa isi project even at its classical stage in latin american history the fact is that the isi model in latin america took place during a period of extraordinary and unusual expansion of the world market in what is so-called the golden age of capitalism, the post-war period. And those rates of growth on the international market, although they're often seen as the measure to which we should compare other phases of world capitalist history, is actually quite outside the patterns of the last 200 years of capitalist development. In other words, there has been no period in world capital development as dynamic in expansionary
0: terms as the post-war period. And it seems pretty clear from a lot of available evidence that there never will be again.
1: I agree with that. So the way I understand the neo-developmental project in places like Bolivia and in those places that were more industrialized in the classical period, like Brazil and Argentina as two obvious neighbors to Bolivia, is that the neo-developmental projects of the Morales government, of the Kirchner governments in Argentina, of the Piti governments under Lula and Rousseff to a lesser degree in Brazil, those neo-developmental projects were occurring within the constraints of an international context of neoliberal globalization, which fundamentally reorganized patterns of production, manufacturing, the international division of labor, the rise of China. So there is no sense in which one can return to this classical period as a developmental strategy, even if it were desirable. And I think there are reasons to suggest it wouldn't be. But even if it were desirable, that strategy of ISI is not going to play out in the same way as it did, given the fundamental changes in the world economy. That does not mean that there is nothing states can do, or there is nothing more appropriately that movements can do to force states in certain directions.
0: I mean, in in other words, ISI's limits were were set by the post-war Fordist global system, whereas neo-developmentalism has been constrained by neoliberalism, and those are much sharper constraints. Yes, exactly. There's a tricky thing about assessing not only Bolivia, but the legacy of the pink tide as a whole, which is determining why they failed to break more decisively with their position in the global capitalist order. Because the, the observation that they did fail to do so leaves unanswered the important question of... Why? Was it because it's extremely hard for a poor and subordinated country to break out or because of political mistakes or shortcomings or maybe both? In, in other words, was Mass's failure to actually create socialism a reflection of an ideological and political problem that led Morales to make certain choices rather than others? Or, or was Morales, like like other governments, simply hemmed in? by giant systemic forces beyond his control, especially given the pressing redistributive demands and the necessity of resource rents to meet them. Could could Morales have broken out while also delivering those very real immediate material gains?
1: Right. I think all of those factors that you mentioned are important in terms of determining in kind of order of importance a series of counterfactuals about what might have happened, which is necessary if we're going to treat history politically and not teleologically as preordained and determined. But at the same time, there's clearly no way to demonstrate that I'm right in 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 posing these counterfactual questions. There can be more believable and less believable
0: explanations. But the way that I read this if only you were one of these political scientists doing a randomly controlled <laughs> tri- <laughs> trials <laughs> exactly
1: exactly so there are no natural experiments in looking at history but we can try to think of we can try to think of the most important factors and for me the way to turn this question into its most interesting form is to not begin with the failure or success of state policy by governments in a technocratic sense but to think of the ways that the balance of forces in society necessary to achieve more transformative change can be or can be released or are constrained under various circumstances which will then have effects in terms of technical policy but it will also make what is possible not a technical question, but a political question in some senses, or a combination of these factors. So what I mean— Because it
0: can't be, it can't be that every, anything short of a total rupture with capitalism simply ends up reproducing and consolidating it. The question is, what sort of radical reforms make society more socialist while opening possibilities through the transformation of the balance of power for more radical transformation?
1: Right. Exactly. I mean, this is all a question of uh, moving towards something, because I think we are on fairly secure ground to say that socialism in one country, even if it were the United States, is not possible, never mind socialism in Bolivia. At least right. that's my position. Um, Agreed. But, it, but it has to start somewhere. And in the most recent cycle in Latin America... It is Bolivia where, paradoxically, you have the greatest opportunity to move somewhere more radical, in my view. It's paradoxical because it's happening in a place with comparatively few resources and comparatively little development of the productive forces industrially and so on. But what is unique about Bolivia is that it had an unparalleled level of mobilization, self-organization of the popular classes, both rural and urban, independent, autonomous, militant, with a section of it which was explicitly anti-capitalist and anti-colonial in, a com- in what I've called a combined liberation struggle, the notion that you can't get out of indigenous oppression in a racialized form of capitalism as it's developed in Bolivia without confronting capitalism, because these are intimately imbricated with one another, and therefore you can't separate out what, as the Morales government later did, I think, into what they called a democratic cultural revolution of indigenous cultural expression and material transformation. These are deeply wedded to one another in a way that was understood, I think, by the principal protagonists of the 2000 to 2005 revolts. And why that's important is that the level of organization of the popular sectors, both rural and urban in Bolivia, is difficult to exaggerate. You had a tremendous, dense infrastructure of struggle, which was unparalleled, even in the most proximate cases. Ecuador, which was also overthrowing several governments in this period. Argentina, which had considerable, although much less organized revolts in 2001, series of destabilized governments, and so on. So there was activity going all around in the late 90s, early 2000s. But in Bolivia, you had a more ideologically coherent and more organized from below directionality to struggle. And you had a crisis from above, which was also unparalleled elsewhere. Now, these are the combinations that one expects in a... ...as a minimum for um, something approximating a a pre-revolutionary situation. And I don't use that term lightly. I think only in the Bolivian case did you have a situation in which... ...the idea of actually transforming society from its roots... ...was at the center of large-scale mass movements. This was not true of anywhere else. As impressive as other struggles were, this was the guiding thread of the most militant, but not just most militant, with social forces behind them in that country. So when Morales comes to office, after these movements overthrow two neoliberal presidents in under two years in the so-called gas wars of 2003-2005, this is where what I said earlier about García Linera's calculation of both the strength of the right and the necessity of going slow is really a determining factor in what is possible in Bolivia because the Morales government has tremendous credibility, tremendous popular credibility, when they come to office and they go about slowly incorporating and decapitating the key independent movements that brought them to office. And they become operatives within the state apparatus. Those leaders lose their relationship with the rank and file and the... Movements become engaged over time in a clientelistic relationship with the governing party, which is more and more confused with the state and access to the distribution of gas rents. Now, I'm not suggesting there's any easy solution to what might have happened or what political decisions the Morales government could have taken. But what I am saying is that had there been a, a more sustained, independent capacity to maintain the interests of struggle for the oppressed groups and classes in the organizations that they had organically produced in the preceding period with such effect, if they had maintained that independence, even while defending the government against the right and destabilization campaigns, this could have moved the scenario such that the range of policies that the government was imagining would be transformed. So this is no longer a technical question exclusively, but also just what is possible on the political horizon. So it matters tremendously what the balance of forces are, although it's clearly not the only thing. I'm not suggesting a voluntarist. You can do anything with the right balance of forces, even if you're in Bolivia. But what I'm also saying is that even though only Bolivia was in what could be closely approximating a pre-revolutionary situation in 2003-2005, had that movement gone further and deeper in ways I'm suggesting, with, the, with retaining those independent capacities and pushing them further, this would have had ricochet effects elsewhere. And this is where we get quite, in quite shaky ground because the counterfactual becomes, if it had happened here, then what would have happened here, then what would have happened there? But the notion is that the limits of the Bolivian process coming from the highest point of mobilization and its relative pacification not to minimize the achievements of poverty reduction and inequality but if we are going to be if we're going to adopt a balance sheet of the Morales period if we don't want to adopt just the metrics of the UN and the World Bank it's not just important that poverty and income is improved those are important fundamentally important to people's lives but a perspective of transformation has to consider Are these reforms building capacities for further transformation? Are the ways that these reforms are being carried out facilitating the self-organizational capacities of those below, or are they being contained and constrained? And I think the balance over time was to shift towards constraining, pacification, and even in some cases, it has to be said, criminalization of specific movements that were seen to be at the margins of the Morales Garcilinera program.
0: So you can see this. Such as lowland indigenous movements protesting against highway and railroad construction in the Tipnis National Park?
1: Exactly. Highway construction in the Tipnis National Park and constitutionally recognized indigenous territory uh, is one key example in 2011 as, as a turning point. And the key lowland indigenous organization in that period is CIDOB, which from that period forward, unsurprisingly, enters into a conflictual relationship with the government. And in the highlands, similarly, Konamak, another indigenous highland organization, uh, enters into conflict with the government in over a series of different disputes. And the government's response to this conflict, in both instances, was to institute what is often called parallelism in the literature on this topic, which is to say the state intervened, including with the police, to remove what is known by uh, activists as the authentic leadership of Sidob and Konamak and to establish a government-adorned and sanctioned new leadership, including giving them the offices of the organizations. Now, This wasn't a consistent or widespread process, that kind of drama that c and Konamak experienced, but lower levels of incorporation into the state, not including the aspect of criminalization, was a phenomenon which was much more widespread. So even those social organizations that retain such large structures and mass bases in the present were seeing the limits of that pacification In the outcome of the coup today, you would have seen, I would argue, a much more militant and effective response to the coup attempt had organizations been at the same capacities as as they were at in 2005 than compared to where they're at today.
0: It was less consequential that Marco Pumari, the head of the Potosi Civic Committee, that he joined with the coup government and more consequential, more generally, the the abstention of social movements from at least the earlier stages of the process.
1: Exactly. And the fact that you can see quite early on in the process the realistic evaluation of Casilinera and Morales and those mass representatives who retained positions in the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies, because remember, even though a coup had taken place They retained majorities in these two houses of Congress. And the new leaders who replaced those who resigned, so the head of the Senate resigned and the head of the Chamber of Deputies resigned, they were both masistas and they were replaced by new masistas who then entered into negotiations with the coup government, not out of some opportunistic renunciation but as a an, as an expression of the balance of forces they didn't think they had the capacity or the organizations extra-parliamentarily to respond in a way that would actually defeat the coup attempt and an assessment of the popularity of that project of having morales return seemed to be unviable and seems to have been accepted even by morales in the moment at the moment now i think that would have been unimaginable in a in a earlier high period of self-organization but to return to one point that i that i missed in terms of what this means for transitional dynamics of socialism knowing that this can't take place in one country and knowing that this isn't going to be some kind of event the transition from capitalism to socialism this will obviously be a protracted antagonistic conflict-ridden process but at a regional scale, there was a real opportunity in terms of the formations which Bolivia was a part of,
0: of the Bolivarian and at the van, at the vanguard of
1: exactly at the vanguard of the the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our America, ALBA, as it's known, the project related to that of a current uh, uh, of a common currency, the Sucre, a the establishment of a Bank of the South, a people's trade agreement between Venezuela. Cuba and Bolivia, which attempted in an incipient
0: way to violate free market norms. And that sort of recapitulated ISI era projects like the New International Economic Order. Exactly. And clearly, these were these
1: kinds of regional organizations. I mean, these have now devastatingly more or less collapsed in their significance. But Those kinds of projects of regional integration would be absolutely necessary to any conceivable transition at a regional scale, because at a minimum, what this would have meant was, for example, in relationship to China, China became the key trading partner and the key driver of primary commodity production in South America in country after country over this period replacing the United States as the key destination. So this is not true of Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean, but it's true of South America. And it also became the source of enormous amounts of loans with conditionalities attached, which are distinct from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, but nonetheless have conditionalities, which asymmetrically benefit Chinese capital and the Chinese state. Now, there was no universe in which these states could could avoid a negotiation with China and an attempt to play China off the United States to achieve some kind of relative autonomy in the world order from a disadvantageous position. But one could speculate that the deals between a regional organization encompassing multiple South American states, and Claudio Katz, the Argentine economist, has written about this, would look much better, a negotiation at that scale with China, the terms of that arrangement, then Ecuador engaging with agreements with China, Bolivia agreements with China, even Venezuela with China and so on, which is a new asymmetry in the world order. So there were certainly visions and moments where you could see the potentialities of a transitional form to something else, not to socialism, but to uh, the necessary prerequisites to that kind of transformation. So I think at the one level, we need to think on a regional scale. And at the other level, we need to think about the centrality of from below capacities of the popular classes and their, the necessity of their autonomy and capacity to struggle for their interests so that this doesn't become a technical discussion of what policies were necessary in the sense that states never choose the conditions of what is technically possible at that moment. But the balance of forces in society can, within limits, change that debate about what is technically possible. And they keep on having that capacity to the extent that they keep on having the capacity to struggle for their interests.
0: You mentioned the, the highland and, and lowland indigenous federations, what about some of the other key groups, the Cocaleros in the Chapari, which is Morales's base and where MAS was, was formed in, in 1998, I believe, also other Cocaleros in the Yungas, and the Central Obrero Boliviana, the, the COB, the big trade union federation, and also FEJUVE, the, the Federation of Neighborhood Councils in El Alto, which is a very powerful social movement historically how did, how did all of these different other groups relate to mass the mass government over the years and what what role are they are they all playing now
1: this is a very good question and quite complicated um, because i think it has to be related on the one hand to the politics of these social organizations and on changes in the political economy as the commodities boom advances because it changes the structure of society and the social base of the government itself. So on the first question of politics, the Seisut Sebe, which is the key peasant organization, remains tightly aligned with the government in terms of the majoritarian element of it. So there are small other peasant organizations such as the Ponchos Rojos or the Red Ponchos of Aymara indigenous radicalism around Achakachi in the Department of La Paz, famously historically associated with Felipe Quispe and others, radical Indianista leaders, they remain independent and, in the latest conflict, actually hostile. The Red Ponchos actually aligned, in this instance, uh, with the... They were incorporated into this right-wing captured movement against Morales as another popular element. But Sesut Cebe as an institution, the main body, was deeply wedded to this government throughout, but it lost its its independent capacities to sustain a struggle even for critical elements of agrarian reform. Fehuve alto the Federation of Neighborhood Councils of Al-Alto, was debilitated because of extreme fragmentation. At some points, there were somewhere around five different fehuves in El Alto itself because of the disputation about how to relate to the Morales government. Nonetheless, in the conflict over the coup, those political disagreements overwhelmingly were, and correctly, I think, overcome to defend Morales against a right-wing anti-democratic coup attempt, but there were some neighborhoods, even in El Alto, some federations of neighbors that didn't participate in the defense of Morales, which is quite striking. The COB, the Bolivian uh, workers central, has been deeply aligned with the government for the last the last five or six years of its life. In the early period, there was more conflictual relations strikes and so on. But the leadership of the Cobb has fundamentally aligned with the Morales government in a way that lost its capacity even to carry out minimal strike activity during the Morales period, despite several occasions when there were legitimate reasons to do so. And the weakness of the Cobb at the moment is nowhere better captured than the fact that Elements of the Cobb, in particular the National Mining Union, actually requested towards the end of the processes undermining Morales' rule that he stepped down, that they didn't believe that, not because they were in support of the coup, but because they didn't think that they could defend the project and to avoid bloodshed, Morales should step down. The cocaleros are, in the Chapare region, are tightly tightly connected to the government, and often, unfortunately, pitted against other lowland indigenous groups now in political battles and so on, having to do with the relationship between c and the government, and the Tipneys conflict, and the conflicting interests between the Coqueleros and their desires to expand their land titles and so on into other indigenous territories, and indigenous groups who are attempting to stop that from happening. And the Cocaleros in the Chapare region, however, came out decisively for Morales, but the Cocaleros in the Yungas were in a separate dispute with Morales and were active in the as a popular element in the destabilization. So the overall story is one of relative weakness, some moments of open opposition, by certain social organizations that I've mentioned, and those organizations closest to the government being highly weakened over and hollowed out over the last 14-year period of Morales' rule.
0: Now that the the coup government has turned out to be so clearly right-wing and is engaging in such massive repression, and that MAS remains the, at least, at the time of the election, the most popular political force in the country. Is there a possibility that this new situation might help unify a, a left that became fragmented at, by the end of, of Morales's tenure?
1: It's possible in the sense that at the moment, it is very difficult to know what is going to happen in the immediate future, even more difficult than usual, because for a number of different reasons but there are some analogies which i think are useful one in particular with argentina where the last period of the cristina fernandez de kirchner administration saw increasing disarray on the argentinian left between the peronists those peronists aligned with fernandez de kirchner herself and her government and those who were trying to attempt to build an independent left, critical of paranism. And there were disputes in the unions, there were disputes in political parties, there were disputes in elections, and so on, as reflections of these divisions. Now, all of that more or less disappeared on the surface in the first year of the Mauricio Macri administration of austerity, because the priority was a all-out organization against a common enemy and there were the biggest demonstrations in recent Argentine history from going back to the early part of this century during the first year of Mauricio Macri now one might imagine that in the current scenario there could be a recomposition of the bases that we have seen fragmented and hollowed out over the last period. But I don't I don't think this is going to be instantaneous. And I think there is going to be a question, a strategic one as there always is in a scenario like this about being overly determined by the temporality of elections, which will be coming in 4 months. What to do in that immediate scenario? And the temporality of the medium term of rebuilding independent capacities of social movement organizational struggle. Now, there's no way for anyone serious on the left to argue that both of these paths are not important terrains that can be avoided. But for the prospects of the Bolivian left and its militant capacities, the medium term seems to me a horizon of probability ...with greater prospects than the immediate situation of these elections. Not least because of the unfortunate, albeit understandable, personalism... ...that has been invested in the figure of Morales. And he is not an easily replaceable figure. If people thought that Chávez was a difficult figure to replace in Venezuela... Morales being the first indigenous president and infrastructurally coordinating the party around the continuity of his leadership will be very, very difficult to recover from. There is no comparable public figure of the mass. Now, ultimately, I think this was necessary, not the coup, clearly. I don't want to be misinterpreted on that point. But the idea of a renewal of leadership was inevitably going to be in the cards, no matter what happened in the medium term. But the mass as a party had done. It was, it was done, a problem
0: that Mass had to deal with at some would have to deal with at some point.
1: Right, and they, and they haven't gone a long way in doing so. In fact, they've explicitly avoided this by the insistence on Morales's continuity.
0: Pablo Stefanoni writes, "Quote." the right also seems too weak to consolidate its desired counter-revolution. And that seems true to me across the region. The, the pink tide has obviously been pushed back, but as we've seen recently in both Chile and Ecuador, and in the, the mass resistance in Bolivia, that the right has not been able to establish hegemony, far far from it. So this isn't a good moment for the left at all in the region, but... It also doesn't seem like this sort of more permanent victory for the right wing that it that it seemed like it might be around the time of Bolsonaro's election.
1: I think that's a very perceptive comment. I mean, I, I can agree with your first statement, and and I'm not feeling optimism rushing through me, although this is a personality fault as well, not merely a description of the balance of forces. But I think you're right to say that the right has no project anywhere in Latin America. And this is quite unlike the early 1990s when the right had a popularizing ideology based on the hope of a future of neoliberal globalization, that this would attract private investment which would replace bloated states, that there would be a rising tide that would lift all boats, and that there was no alternative except to get on that program. Post-2008 and the latest crisis of capitalism at a global scale, this is very unconvincing, not just in Latin America, but around the world. And in Latin America, how this is unfolding is that both the center-left And to a certain degree, the left who were in office in different countries have been undermined in their capacities to rule in a hegemonic sense. This is why I would insist on the the end-of-the-cycle thesis. It's true that it's the end of the cycle even where the left is still in office. Maduro is still in office in Venezuela. It would be wrong to suggest that Venezuela is in some high point of left transformation. The former vice president of Rafael Correa is in office in Ecuador, and he's presently one of the most right-wing presidents in the region, facing off with popular revolt. So there's an end of the cycle of a certain kind of left attached to the limits of the pink tide. And we can say that, and we need to say that, even as we accept the gains that were made during that period of the high point of the pink tide. But unless we understand the limits and contradictions of that pink tide period, we can't hope to explain the dynamism of new rights. And by dynamism, I want to say that there's a new attraction to new rights of different kinds. But you can say that as well while saying what you pointed out so clearly, that there is no project once they come to office. What kind of project does Anya's have? She has no project. What kind of project did Carlos Mesa have? No project. What kind of project did Mauricio Macri have? No project. Bolsonaro is in historically low popularity levels in Brazil. In Colombia, just now, we have protests adding on to those against Piñera in Chile and those in Ecuador against Moreno. Duque. Right, Duque in in Colombia. So... I think we need to relate this back again to the question of the world market and Latin America's position in in it, because it helps to explain why they don't have a project. Because it's important, despite all of the recurring talk at times over the last decade or so of recovery in the United States, recovery in the Eurozone, recovery in China, there has been no recovery. And there's finally a recognition, even by mainstream economists, of a period without obvious end of secular stagnation. So whether you want to build a left project, which we do, or a right project, which they do, it will have to be transformational and in a different setting, responding to the new terrain. And in my view, that means a more serious theorization of what it means to be an anti-capitalist today and anti-systemic which is the only way to realistically grapple with the state of the world in the terrain in which people are located, wherever you are. In Latin America, it's adapting to the dynamics of that world situation as they play out in the very specific locales that you find yourself in.
0: Well, Jeff Weber, thank you very
1: much. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Jeff Weber will, beginning in January, be a professor in the Department of Politics at York University in Toronto. His most recent book is The Last Day of Oppression and The First Day of the Same, The Politics and Economics of the New Latin American Left. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after assessing how a grotesque mediocrity had come to play a hero's part, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. That's what really helps the most please make propaganda for us and do find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong even a few bucks is huge